Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim? Do you remember a couple of years ago when there was a petition calling on President Obama to build a Death Star? Oh, yeah, I do remember that. Well, you know, the White House declined, citing the cost of $850 quadrillion. But I think the major issue wasn't the cost, but branding something called the Death Star. You know, if they'd have just gone with another name like Battle Station Freedom or, you know, the Liberty Star, then I think we'd really be in business. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear topics interact. I'm Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies and thinks about nuclear policy for a living. And I'm Joel, and I am honored to be considered an expert by Tim here, probably only because I watched the Star Wars movies growing <laughs> up enough times to actually exceed the amount of time I spent in school to actually make myself an expert in all things Star Wars. So good to be here, Tim. You wore out your uh, VHS tapes, is what I hear. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I had to uh, tape a couple of them off the TV. You remember when we had to do that? So oh, good times. I remember then I saw the actual full VHS and I was like, what? Where, where did this scene come from? <laughs> well, as Joel already hinted at, I'm excited to talk today about the nuclear nonsense in Star Wars, the entire franchise. Specifically, though, the most recent movie, Rogue One, which came out, I believe, in December and it's made a bunch of money. I think it just crossed over the billion mark. Uh, but I know probably what you're thinking. Star Wars, I've seen Star Wars a lot. Joel, you've seen Star Wars quite a bit. And uh, when I mentioned this topic to you originally, I think you uh, expressed the opinion probably everyone has is, I don't remember any nukes in Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, most people are thinking about lightsabers, star destroyers, nuclear mushroom clouds. I don't know. doesn't seem, I don't remember that offhand. Well, let me make my case. First, I'm 100% sure that Ewoks are actually Wookiees that have suffered radiation damage. That's my, that's my first argument. Uh, but secondly, more importantly, uh, we're going to talk about the Death Star as a stand-in for the nuclear weapon stockpiles of the world. And all of the accompanying nuclear imagery, deterrence theories, and dangers. And I hope uh, you'll learn a little bit today and, and enjoy our conversation. So like I said, we're talking about Star Wars, specifically Rogue One which was a 2016 fantasy sci-fi action movie. As the posters urged us, we should save the rebellion, save the dream. This movie was directed by Gareth Edwards, who you may remember from the reboot of the Godzilla movie, which came out in 2014. And it has a couple of uh, big stars. We'll talk just a little bit about the big ones here. Uh, we got Felicity Jones as Jen Erso, the our heroine of the story. Uh, she's a she's a little bit of a rebel. Uh, we've got Diego Luna as our uh, other co-star playing a character named Cassian Andor, a leader in the rebellion. Ben Mendelsohn plays the the villainous Orson Krennic, who's like a project manager for the Death Star. The guy who's rallying the troops and beware the mid-tier bureaucrats in the Empire. Those are the ones you gotta look out for. They're the ones trying to move up, move up the, uh, the food chain. It's Mad Mickelson, who plays Galen Urso, who's kind of, he's a good guy, uh, but he gets recruited by the Empire uh, sometimes that is uh, against his will to build the Death Star. Smart guy. I have to say, I think this is the first movie where he's played an actual, like, good person. I feel like <laughs> in every movie, he's either some kind of serial killer or, you know, James Bond-esque, you know, villain. So well, he, yeah, he's I'm glad a... to see he can, you know, diversify a little bit. It's a Star Wars movie, so you have to have a fancy robot. Alan Tudyk, who you may remember from Firefly, uh, he plays a sarcastic, literal robot named uh, K2SO. 
maybe some people know about the story of Star Wars, but they may not actually get the the context of how this relates to international affairs and other some national security topics. Even back as far as Ronald Reagan, press and the public described his strategic defense initiative, which was essentially missile defense, but it had some fancy plans to use lasers to knock down incoming nuclear armed missiles because how popular Star Wars was at the time. It ended up being called the Star Wars program. The White House seemed to enjoy the popularity. Star Wars had found its way in national security affairs. So, Tim, when they called it Star Wars, was that like an unofficial tagline that just stuck? Or was that the actual official name for this program? Well, like an actual memorandum? It was not an official name, no, okay. at all. The, the official name was Strategic Defense Initiative. But the press called it somewhat derisively as Star Wars because, um, you know, it's a sci-fi movie that maybe they don't take very seriously, but it's popular. So that's a way to describe space-based lasers shooting down incoming missiles. I think uh, the White House is pretty happy with it being called that ultimately because uh, people connected it to something that was pretty positive. So maybe that might have backfired a little bit. Uh, and as we kind of hinted at the beginning during our cold open, there was a petition on the White House website in 2013 uh, when you would have, you would submit, a, anyone could submit a petition and if it got passed, I think maybe 20,000 signatures or maybe 100,000 signatures, the White House had to respond. And it was request for Obama to build a Death Star for the United States by 2016, which obviously uh, it's, it's 2017 now. We haven't seen that yet. But it got over 30,000 signatures. And the White House responded uh, by saying that the administration, quote, shares your desires for job creation and a strong national defense, but a Death Star is not on the horizon, that the administration does not support blowing up planets. And I guess I should note by complete coincidence, I think it was a short time later that the White House increased the signature threshold from 30,000 to 100,000. <laughs> so I don't think it's in any way related to the fact that the White House had to respond to shouts to build a Death Star. But it was fun. People liked, I, think, I think a lot of people liked the, the – it was a very funny response – uh, back, I like it quoted the the cost, which they said was eight hundred and fifty quadrillion dollars, which I think they said was something along like eight to thirteen times the entire planet's gross domestic product, adjusted for inflation. Probably, yeah, yeah. It, it would be pretty pricey. Uh, but let's run through the plot a little bit here. Uh, everybody, most people know about Star Wars, so you know, spoiler alert for those that haven't got into it yet. We're gonna run through really briefly the the general plot of Star Wars, so everyone has the right context. We're mostly gonna focus on the scenes and the context of the Death Star. Uh, which, as most people know, the the Death Star is a giant battle station. It's the size of something that would be confused for a small moon. It's one of the largest objects in science fiction. Uh, and it's a battle station that has one big laser that can blow up an entire planet when it's, you know, it's fired at its full capacity. It can travel through space at light speed very, very quickly. Uh, it ha can have a bunch of uh, Starfighters and other things inside of it that you know, and it's got defenses. It, it's something that once you build it, you're a pretty formidable force. But as we find out in the Star Wars movies, it's got a weakness in the middle of it. If you had this one particular vent, didn't have a door on the vent, you shoot a missile on that, starts a chain reaction, the whole thing blows up. Most of Star Wars has been about trying to blow up these Death Star-like objects. You have one in Episode Four, which was the first one to come out in 1977. You have one in Episode Six. Uh, which I think came out in the 80s. Um, yeah, mid-80s. Mid-80s. Uh, 87, maybe? That was a, a larger Death Star, even bigger than the first one, uh, but it wasn't finished yet, kind of. It was like half-built, looked really cool, but it still had a cannon that could fire and destroy a planet. And then in Star Wars A Force Awakens, which came out just, I think, in 2015, 
that movie had a something called Star Killer Base, which was like a Death Star built into a, a moon or a planet. Another thing that would be able to destroy a bunch of planets at once. So it keeps pushing the envelope, escalating it a little bit further. But Joel, you're the Star Wars expert here. Why don't you run through very the general context of Star Wars and, and Rogue One so we're all on the same page before we get into the nitty-gritty nuclear stuff. Sure, and, and again, I think most people have seen it, so we just want to set up the, the basics. Jin Erso is, is kind of the obviously the main character. Um, in Rogue One. Yeah. In Rogue One. Uh, we find in the, the beginning of the movie, Mads Mikkelsen's character, Galen, uh, is kind of hiding away on this desolate, lush planet, and Orson Krennic's character comes down to the planet. We find out that apparently Galen was one of the key people working on the Death Star. They make some cryptic references to how his work has to continue, and Orson is there to try to recruit him back to the Empire. Uh, there's some conversation between Galen and Krennic about how Galen left that life uh, behind him, and he's not willing to go back. It's at that point that there's a scuffle, there's uh, a struggle. Uh, the Imperial soldiers that Krennic was with end up killing uh, Galen's wife, uh, and then they try to get his daughter, but the daughter uh, is able to get away and hide away. So that stage where basically Krennic forces Galen to return with them to the Empire, and as we understand it, continue his work on the Death Star. Mm -hmm. Then you fast forward about 15 years, uh, and, you yeah, and you find that um, Jin has kind of become this loner, not cast away, but someone who's just kind of floating through the galaxy in more ways than one. She's got a record. She's got a record. I, I believe you first see her in her current age for the movie's plot in jail, and she's broken out of prison basically by the rebellion, as she later learns. And the, and the rebels are, you know, there's the Empire who through nefarious means, this emperor creates like a military force, takes over a democratic system and the prequels of Star Wars. And then the empire is where we really start. They're the ones that seem, they have an iron grip over the universe. They're all about power. Uh, and the rebellion are these you know kind of ragtag team of people that have been set up to resist them and overthrow them and, and bring back the, the Republic, the democratically elected intergalactic federation. Right. So uh, basically what she finds is that the, the rebels broke her out of prison because they've intercepted some transmissions. They've heard that an imperial um, – I don't think he's actually in the military. He's uh, just a ship – a pilot. Yeah, an imperial pilot has apparently defected, uh, and he apparently has really important news for the rebellion to learn about some secret plans that are underway. And they hear that it involves Galen, and so they think, well, if we can get her – uh, get his daughter to make contact with her father, maybe they'd be able to make use and exploit this information about some nefarious plans that the, the Empire has. Possibly, but, possibly even, they don't tell the daughter this, but possibly including assassinating Galen Urso so that they can't, he can't finish building the Death Star. Exactly. And, of course, she doesn't know that. So they basically recruit her to go down to the planet Jeddah, which apparently is where the Imperial pilot is uh, located and basically they connect with people there that are uh, part of the re rebellion. I thought it was really cool where you actually get a better sense of the conflict within the rebellion when it was first getting going where, mm -hmm. you know, in the, the earlier movies for, from the originals, it seemed like, oh, there's this big rebellion, almost like a counter government that was perfectly organized with their own militaries. <laughs> Here you see it much more disorganized, people trying to figure out, well, who answers to who? 
you even get this, I thought, a really interesting dynamic where you had more extremists. I think they actually used the word extremist once or yeah. twice, which I thought was an interesting way to, you know, it, it wasn't just this peaceful, loving group that was heroically fighting the evil empire. It was, you know, not so savory characters as well who were kind of all mixed up. See, some of the rebels not happy with what decisions they've had to make in support of what they assume is the greater good, but possibly, you know, killing people that are innocent. But it's if they do that, then they're able to continue their military mission. Right. And so down on Jeddah, you have the, the rebels that are kind of squabbling amongst themselves as far as what should we do with this Imperial pilot? Uh, what's the information? Is it credible? Is it a trap? Because, you know, they like traps, as we found in other movies. <laughs> uh, and uh, all the while, you, you realize that it's on Jeddah where um, the kyber crystals are being mined, that they find are part of the broader weapon that we come to know as the it's Death Star. The, the fuel to fuel the Death Star super laser cannon thingy. Right. Uh, which also becomes important when you get into lightsabers, which mm -hmm. is always a fun topic of discussion. So they 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 make a connection with the pilot, but it's at that point where you actually see the these the initial power of the Death Star, where they actually have the Death Star go to that planet, and right as our heroes are escaping the planet, you have the Death Star gets deployed a, a, a not a case study but a test firing. <laughs> the first use of it, yeah. The first use of so the weapon. Prepare single reactor ignition. Sir, so we're in position. Ready? Fire! Commence primary ignition. Oh, it's beautiful. How the Death Star is normally set to 11, right. you know, because it's... It's the strongest that it can go. Dials it down maybe to a four or three. Instead of blowing up the entire planet, it just blows up the city temple area. Right. And I won't go into the visuals because I know Tim's going to get into that and dissect it a little bit. But basically, they fire it down. They destroy this whole area. Our heroes, I'll just refer to them group as our group of heroes. They're able to get away. We know what side you're on here. Right, exactly. Our group of heroes are able to get away. Uh, they, they get some of the initial information of where her father is supposed to be staying. The Rebel Alliance is unsure about next steps. They don't know what they're going to do. And in a, a fit of frustration, you see Jin actually kind of leave with kind of a ragtag group of folks to go to the planet where her father is situated to try to rescue slash stop them. They show up and... You get some more details about what's going on with the uh, the Death Star. Father, this whole time, you know, he was pretending to be a worker for the Empire. And actually, his greatest achievement, building this gigantic engineering challenge of the Death Star, he placed a small flaw that no one would look for and find. But it's essentially something that if the, the Rebellion knew about, this little vent that if you blow up with a, a rocket just the right way or something, that it would cause a chain reaction. He put that in there. So that was always a mystery in the old Star Wars movies. Like who is dumb enough yeah. to not <laughs> weld a latch over the vent? Exactly. Uh, so it turns out that it was you know, on purpose. So just as uh, Jin is making contact with her father, uh, the, the rebels, once they learn that Jin has gone to that planet, say, well, we might as well go and attack them, see if we can stop the people who are working on this Death Star. They send their fleet of X-Wings, the rebels, they attack the, the fort. In that battle, Jin's father dies in front of her, but fortunately there's this quick 30 seconds where they can kind of connect, and he says, I'm so sorry, I hope I was able to do some good. 
and you see that moral conflict that he had internally about being forced to continue to work on the Death Star, but hopefully he's provided some sort of redemption for his work uh, by being able to allow the, the rebels to, to take it on. And his daughter gets to find out that his father wasn't a horrible yeah, person. Was a horrible person. Right. Convenient. So the our band of heroes are able to get away. And then uh, once they realize, though, that they have to get the full plans for the Death Star, they realize and learn that the plans would likely have been transferred to what is essentially a giant Google Drive planet <laughs> uh, called Scarif. And Protected by a f- gigantic planet-wide force field. Planet-wide force field. One little door. Apparently, you know, that's that's kind of their MO, as we found over the last couple movies. You know, just I, put a giant force field around it. I really thought, so, that, you know, a, a parody of Star Wars is the Spaceballs movie with Mel Brooks directing. Uh, there's a whole scene where the planet from there is protected by a force field and the, the bad guys uh, try to suck all the air out because they wanted some more oxygen. And I almost, I could not stop thinking that that's what this was some sort of an homage to. The homage to the homage of the originals. Yeah, that's uh, that's inception level homage. Yep. Um, so it's at this point where they're trying to figure out what to do. They, they need to get the plans. They're still trying to figure out what they should do. Jin eventually takes a group of ragtag group of volunteers, <laughs> essentially. I should say this is when the, the rebels were really frustrating and not wanting – the not, not being able to decide what to do. Right. She takes the raggiest of the ragtag. And it's funny because – she has no plan when she's like, we're going to go. It's just, we're going to go, and we'll figure it out along the way. So they, they go to Scarif, able to impersonate because they have the defector with them. He's able to uh, use an Imperial ship, which they've dubbed Rogue One, hence the title. They're able da- to get down to the planet, impersonate some Imperial soldiers. It reminds me of Episode Four, where they were pulled in by the or- original Oh, Death yeah, Star, yeah. and they're having to run around in the bowels of the infrastructure and turn off the tractor beam, and you know that kind of thing. When they dress like the, the stormtroopers, right. and the bad guys, and everything. exactly. So they're you know they're incognito or whatever, and then basically what you find is Jin and Cassian are able to ultimately get to the Google Drive of the the Empire giant server room, and they locate. So it's at this point where uh, Krennic has gotten wind that the rebels are on to the Death Star, that they're on to the planning of the, the structure. And so Krennic actually goes to Scarif to safeguard the plans. Ultimately, in order to get the plans, the rebels start making these diversions by attacking different parts of the base. And so you see this very epic battle where seemingly a small number of rebels are able to challenge the large base mm-hmm. which is i thought a really cool change up from what we've seen previous previously in movies with you know it's not a winter planet it, it's not a desert a planet. sand planet you know this i i, I was thought that Almost like what you've heard about actual government facilities being like in Hawaii and stuff, <laughs> being like very boring, but like paradise, you know, yeah. like the beach and everything. You have this nice scarif planet. I wonder if this was the cool assignment. Uh, this is the one you want. If you're like an IT in the Empire, you're like, please let me get it assigned to scarif. Like, <laughs> I don't want to go to like Hoth or anything. I just want well, nice I wonder. Beach. I wonder what the giant force field around the planet, if that lets you catch the right amount of sun rays. So you can get your tan Perfect going. tan, no yeah. sunburn, you know? I could see that Maybe. Happen. Yeah. They're able to get the, the data. They're able to upload the plans of the Death Star to the rebels mm-hmm. that have since, you know, come in at light speed to attack the, the Empire once they realize that the rebels were going after it, this ragtag group. But the Empire, in a last-ditch effort to stop the plans from being sent, actually brought the Death Star to... 
their doorstep Uh-oh. and actually said, destroy the entire Scarif base. Like their own base. Right. Vampire's like, nope, we're just going to blow up the whole thing. Which, you know, is a pretty last-ditch effort sure. to stop cut, them from Cut our losses. Them. Yeah. Which, if you think about it, the Empire, you could see them doing that. When oh, he yeah. said that, I was like, yeah, I could see him doing it. So maybe if you're in IT, you wouldn't want to go there. But <laughs> anyway, so you see a second test fire of the city-destroying capability of the Death Star. And in kind of the final moments, you see our heroes, having succeeded in their mission, accept their fate as the giant Death Star laser shoots down onto the Scarif planet. And you see this slow but assured destruction that heads their way. And the Jin and Cassian characters are kind of embracing, saying, we did it. I think Cassian says, your father would have been proud of you. They're hugging as white light implies that they've died. Then we move to what a lot of people think is like one of the coolest parts of the entire movie where you see the plans have gotten to the rebels You see this cool imagery of the destruction down on the planet, which Tim will get into. You kind of almost go straight into what becomes episode four, where the rebels are getting in a ship and they're trying to escape the Empire with the Death Star plans. You see Darth Vader do what Darth Vader does oh so well. Chase after them. You see this epic fight scene where Darth Vader is just taking out rebels left and right. And then you see ultimately the Death Star plans on a floppy disk or a zip drive disk, (laughs) like a floppy. The plans are given to Leia and basically the guy says, you know, what do you think this is? I think he asks and she says, hope. Cue the music. And then you have the the, the ship go into uh, light speed and cue the credits, which obviously is a way to directly walk into episode four as Leia's ship is running away from the Empire and Darth Vader invades the ship. You don't probably need to know about the rest of Star Wars, but, you know, Death Star gets blown up. Then there's a little bit of other stuff happening. Then the other Death Star gets blown up. (laughs) Some more stuff happens. And then the other Death Star gets blown up. Thanks, Joel, for running through that. I think we got a pretty good context here, foundation of the Star Wars mythos, to be able to get into some of the nuke stuff. Because I think that Rogue One, in particular, you know, Star Wars in general, deploys the Death Star as a visual, technical and thematic stand-in for thermonuclear weapons. Now, of course, I would say that because that's all I think about when I watch movies, uh, but I I actually think we're on to something here. So this conversation today that we're having on the podcast is actually based on an article that I had published recently in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist uh, in January 2017. And you may know about the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist because they're the ones who keep what's called the Doomsday Clock which was just recently in the past week, changed from where it was to two minutes and 30 seconds to midnight. Midnight in the doomsday clock is World War Three, nuclear bombs, end of the world. Not a good time to be. You know, when it's safe, you move the clock further away from midnight. This is the closest it's been to midnight in a long, long, long time since the heart of the Cold, the Cold War. War. What was it most recently before it got moved to two and a half? Three minutes. So they're not too uh, happy with the way the world is, but... You know, before all that happened, I got an article published about the Death Star and nuclear and pop culture stuff. I wrote one before about why Game of Thrones dragons are also kind of symbolic of nuclear weapons. We'll get to that episode eventually. In this article and in our discussion today, I break up our agenda here by a series of terrible Star Wars puns, starting with Mushroom Cloud City. On a purely visual level, Rogue One is chock full of nuclear imagery. So as Joel kind of mentioned already, in the original Star Wars movie, A New Hope, the Death Star doesn't attack a planet. It obliterates the peaceful planet of Alderaan in an instant. 
So it just explodes like a firecracker instead of a water balloon, you know? Just boom, it's gone. The same for the Death Star-esque weapon in A Force Awakens. You see a bunch of planets that just all of a sudden get destroyed uh, and blow up. There's no nuance to it. The whole planet's gone. In Rogue One, however, by dialing down the Death Star's destructive force, its destructive yield, uh, if you will, to the level of a metropolitan area destruction, the movie is free to tap into all of our own pre-existing experiences with movies that have nuclear bombs going off. Some of them we've talked about in the podcast. Things like Independence Day, Terminator 2... Uh, the day after, which we'll get to at some point, uh, just to name a few of those, it taps into that existing imagery and not just the traditional Star Wars of Death Star fires, an entire planet blows up. And I think they say that the Death Star has maybe four reactors that are operating to power the cannon that destroys the entire planet. I think if you only run one of them, then that's when you get these smaller level destructions. But once this is used, you get to see the imagery uh, that we'll talk about in a second. But this is also very parallel to real world nuclear weapons. Some of them, which you can dial a yield. You can go from a smaller yield weapon to a higher yield. And yield is the destructive force in equivalence of tons of TNT. So before they tested the Trinity bomb back in, in 1945, they took 100 pounds of TNT and they put them out in the middle of a desert. They stacked them up, they put up some measuring equipment, uh, and they got behind a shield, hopefully, and lit the fuse. And 100 tons of TNT exploded, and they were able to measure what that would be like. Like, what's the equivalent power, destructive force, everything along those lines. And then when they measured the Trinity nuclear bomb test, they were then able to compare it. So that's when you hear about yield, kilotons, megatons. That's in terms of the equivalent of a conventional chemical explosion uh, of, of TNT. You have weapons that are small yield, or which sometimes referred to as tactical nuclear weapons. Examples include the now-retired W-54 warhead. It had a couple different models. Uh, it can range from 10 tons, which is very, very, very small, uh, upwards up to one kiloton, which is very small, uh, even compared to the bombs that were dropped in, in uh, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki back in 1945, which were around 13 to 19, 16 kiloton. One kiloton is pretty small. And then you even have others like the B-61 nuclear bombs, which are dropped from airplanes and jet fighters. Uh, those have what are referred to as variable yields. So you can actually dial up or down on an individual warhead itself to the different destructive forces. There's different ways they do that. Uh, one way is to adjust the amount of fusion-boosting gas of deuterium and tritium, uh, which is injected into the warhead right before it actually goes off, and that can boost the amount of fission that takes place. So you can put all of it, you can put a little bit of it, and that can adjust the amount of explosion you get at the end. You can also adjust the amount of neutrons that are initiated at the beginning of the warhead. Uh, you have to shoot a few neutrons at the beginning to start the chain reaction. And the way you can do that, you can put a little bit, you can put a lot, and that can end up determining the amount of bomb that you have at the end. And you can also, uh, in a two-stage bomb where you have fission and then fusion, all that kind of re different reactions in a the thermonuclear bomb, you can just shut off the second reaction. So it's just a one-stage nuclear bomb. Uh, so one example of this is some of the models of the B-61. Uh, the Mod 10 in particular can be dialed all the way down to 0.3 kilotons and upwards to 80 kilotons. So that's a pretty big range that they can adjust depending on the mission, similar to what they do in the Star Wars universe, which is in Rogue One, when the Death Star's massive green, it's always green, uh, super laser is fired against Jeddah, as Joel mentioned, a population center where people live, and Seraph, which is a military target, the weapons effects in the movie include basically everything that you normally would see, the usual menu of nuclear bomb imagery. Got your master fireballs. Check. 
You've got your rising mushroom clouds. Check. You've got your condensation rings. Check. Expanding shock waves. Check. You got your massive fireball. So in a when a nuclear bomb goes off, the 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 radiation will heat up the air, and also the energy released will heat up the air and essentially cause it to catch on fire. And you have this expanding fireball that usually, if it's on the ground, uh, will get higher and higher and higher, and that creates the mushroom cloud imagery uh, that we're usually used to. If you if it's up in the air, say you have an airburst bomb, those will just be a larger circular spherical explosion. But there was additional imagery, which I thought is somewhat in contrast to what we typically see in the nuclear explosions, where you had this like earthquake-esque, oh, yeah. at least in the Jeddah explosion. Not so much in on Scarif, where it was much more nuclear in terms of the imagery, like the white light and all that stuff. The Jeddah was much more... They they showed more of the process, so when you see it the second time, you, you in your head go, okay, I know what's going on now. But it seemed to hit the ground... There's some kind of initial explosion, but then kind of the earth is almost like it, it almost becomes an earthquake slash like a ground wave tsunami. Yeah. yeah, like it, it starts curving over as if you could be like uh, uh, surfing on the, the ground. And then you have Forrest Whitaker's character, uh, Guerrera, who's, you know, watching the ground as it's coming at him, which I thought was less of a nuclear bomb. You know, you didn't yeah. even actually see the white light. Maybe it's because they were so far away. Well, so but... the white light is, is traditionally in a nuclear bomb when it goes off. It's the flash. There's an mm -hmm. initial flash of light and heat, uh, essentially thermal effects, where if anything's within a certain range of that, if it's flammable like clothing or, you know, people, uh, they catch on fire. Uh, mm -hmm. So maybe concrete doesn't catch on fire, but you'll still get burned a little bit. So, But you don't get that flash because in a nuclear bomb, all of the energy is released from a certain focal point. Uh, within you know the tiniest little sliver of a second, everything gets released all at once from a particular source. It seems like the, when a, the Death Star is fired from out of outer space, it comes down and it hits the ground. Uh, there isn't an initial flash. Now there's maybe like the fireball white light that gets appeared that they do later on in Scarif, but there isn't that initial uh, uh, you know kind of light. But what you're talking about in terms of the earthquakes, I think that probably the movie magic logic behind that is that the laser isn't just a one-time above-ground explosion. It like mm -hmm. hits into the earth and goes through it quite a bit, and then the energy from you know causes like going, a chain reaction. Causes a chain reaction. Uh, it's like yeah, it's like a the, the force has to go somewhere and it disrupts and causes right. the ground. I mean, I think practically. Up. Uh, and I think we can talk about this a little bit. The reason why they dialed it down to city destroying stuff is it's all for yeah. narrative purposes because they wanted the, the cool visual. So like the characters can like see their demise in both instances as opposed to, oh, boom, the whole thing blew up. Like yep. Alderaan. And also gives our, our heroes a chance to get away. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, there are many moments both on Jeddah and Scarif where – if they had all of their kyber crystals in, in a row, the movie would kind of been over. So but I it's like, oh, we got to make it possible for them to get away both they, times. They also don't want to, I think the Empire doesn't want to destroy an entire planet just yet because they still, it's kind of the Death Star is a bit of a secret. It's not everyone knows about it yet. I think later on, Darth Vader has having this conversation with, with Krennic and Krennic's like, oh, well, the, the Death Star, when it was used to destroy Jeddah and, and Darth Vader's like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. That was uh, that was the rebels blowing up the Kyber crystal plant and it caused uh, the temple to be destroyed. The Death Star is not even a thing yet. What are you talking about? Imagine that if I was doing a Darth Vader impression. Yeah, exactly. 
Now I just sound like I have a sinus infection or something. <laughs> get, you some, get you some Sudafed. But this whole imagery, we're talking about the, the there's a little bit of a, a rising mushroom cloud, especially in the second use of the bomb. But we have these things as well called condensation cloud. Uh, there was a, those circular rings of air, of heated air that come out, band out from that. You see a lot of those types of clouds in uh, nuclear testing. So if you go on, you know, you go on your YouTube or you, you get a, like I have a nuclear testing imagery DVD. Um, you can look and see a lot of that picture. So it looks like the, when the visual effects department or the director were working on this, that they clearly drew inspiration from nuclear testing data. And you also have the expanding shockwave. And I think it seems like the shockwave slash fireball, it wasn't really clear if it was the shockwave that hit our heroes at the end of the movie or it was the fireball. It seemed like it was the fireball. The fireball would probably not expand out as far as the shockwave. The shockwave would go further and faster. You would be more like them being pushed away. But um, I guess the fireball. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think there's just people know to associate a white light with fire and destruction, given the nuclear things they borrowed. So I don't think you're supposed to think too much about it. But that's oh, what that's, we're, that's that's what what we're what we do. do. Yeah. But either way, all those different things put together, the spectacle of it is so grand that uh, the project director we talked about, uh, uh, Orson Krennic, declares, quote, it's beautiful when he first sees it, which I thought was fascinating because uh, it was also that's the same observation, uh, pretty close, not exact, uh, that the uh, real world uh, major Clyde Shields, who upon witnessing the first trial run of the Trinity nuclear test, he was a pilot on the B-29 Super Fortress at the observation plane, pretty close to what he said. He said, it, you know, it was, it was beautiful. It's a quite a sight. So it's one of those things that makes people, because of what it looks like, you know, it's destructive, but it's also, an, you know, an impressive scientific achievement, something that you wouldn't normally see in your day-to-day -day life. So I think the linkage between, you know, this testing data or whatever a nuclear bomb would look like in real life to what we see in Rogue One, the director, Gareth Edwards, uh, who, again, we are talked about, he was, he helmed the 2014 reboot of Godzilla. Godzilla, if you may not know, has its links to radiation and nuclear testing. So he has a little bit of background in, in terms of what it means uh, to, to, to use and appropriate nuclear imagery and, and, and the effects of nuclear bombs. He, he mentioned when he did Godzilla that a good horror story is, quote, best served when there is guilt. So a sense behind it that what's really scary is our own emotional attachment to when a, why we might have caused the very demons that are haunting us. And he said that, quote, Godzilla is here because of our sins and our misuse of the power of nature, using nuclear weapons and power, nuclear power, that is. Given how the Death Star is portrayed on the screen, it's no surprise when I did a little bit of research um, that he was actually a digital effects artist on this 2005 BBC docudrama called Hiroshima, featuring historical reenactments and computer-generated imagery of the 1945 atomic explosions on Japan. I think that he had a little bit of experience doing this type of digital effects work and translated that right over to Star Wars. I think that's, that's a pretty cool uh, link there. So if you're still listening to the podcast, you can see that we're not going crazy here. The second section, which I like to call Death Star Deterrence. The Death Star is not just a powerful explosive weapon. Similar to the Soviet Union's Tsar Bomba, which was a gigantic hydrogen bomb that was potentially can go up towards of 100 megatons. Never anything close to what the United States tested. You know, most of our bombs we actually use are in the range of maybe 120 at the most megatons. This bomb 
that the Soviets made could have gone upwards of 100 megatons, the Tsar Bomba, but it wasn't deployable. It was essentially this gigantic testing site where they tested the bomb. They could, you can't even put this thing in an airplane. Probably even couldn't put it onto a boat and float it away. It was too heavy, the type of refrigeration that you would need to do to keep all the nuclear fuel and other components uh, ready to go. It wasn't usable, but it was a big bomb. It proved that you can build a bomb that big. So the Death Star is not like that. The Death Star's value is that it is a deployable weapon capable of traveling to its targets, you know, at the, at, at the speed of light, penetrating defensive systems that you may have set up uh, in the course of your uh, pl planning your planetary defense, uh, and even goes up against hardened bunkers. You know, it doesn't matter if you're underground, the ground is now gone. The whole thing is exploded. Well, and I always thought that <laughs> the fact that you could have the Death Star travel at light speed almost was more ridiculous than the Death Star being able to destroy planets. Hmm. Because, I mean, you know, we've seen really big ships like naval ships and stuff like that, but they can't exactly go the same speed as a speedboat or something like that. You could see you putting enough stuff in space where it's weightless to, you know, have enough firepower to maybe destroy a whole planet or whatever. But I always love that they paired they paired that destructive power with, oh, we can also go like <laughs> light speed. Yeah, we, we got, this gigantic moon has a hyperdrive. Right. So I was thinking like, yes, Galen was probably like the guy tasked with the military stuff. But can you imagine being like the the random, you know, light speed engineer number mm. three and be like, how oh, are we going to move this thing, man? It's going to be <laughs> tough. I don't know. I, I always thought that was the weight. The, the weight of that job is pretty heavy. Yeah. yeah. Bruh. I don't know how we're going to do this. Because of those combination of power, destruction force, and in speed, well, a rebel commander in Rogue One, and this is really where I think it hits the, this, this nuclear imagery stuff right on the nose, calls the Death Star a, quote, means of mass destruction. A means of mass destruction. Not a weapon, but, you know, a means of mass destruction. Uh, but that's really kind of the fits the, the, the model of what the Death Star's purpose is in this universe. The Empire uses the Death Star to maintain order, essentially assuming that planets around the galaxy would remain loyal or, you know, they would be uh, fearful of gazing at the Death Star dwarfing their own horizon right before they see that green flash destroying their planet. This strategy of shock and awe, which actually in the Star Wars extended universe, um, you know, there's the movies and there's the cartoon series, which are considered canon and then there's the expanded universe and other things which are legends uh they don't really fit anymore but if you go on the the wikipedia which is the wikipedia version of uh star wars the wikipedia talks about something called the tarkin doctrine which is named after the death star's commander who you see in a cgi portrayal uh, in this movie uh his name is uh wilhuff tarkin they call him sometimes Commander Tarkin. He's a, also a Governor Tarkin. But the Tarkin Doctrine is this shock and awe, use of military force to instill fear around the galaxy, keep these planets in line. Now, this kind of brand of logic to anyone who maybe lived through the Cold War or studied it or has seen, maybe even just Dr. Strangelove, is familiar. Because uh, it was it's the same type of debate that people that have gone through deterrence theory and, and how you build mutually assured destruction and, and how you project force through nuclear weapons, the same type of dialogue happens. And one of the, the scenes that I think was really illustrative of this point, and Joel and I will do a little back and forth here, uh, is between the reluctant engineer protagonist, uh, Galen Erso, and uh, the cruel imperial taskmaster, uh, Orson Krennic, uh, and I will be Krennic. We were this close to providing peace and security for the galaxy. You're confusing peace with terror. Well, you have to start somewhere. 
we tried out for the movie, but I, I don't know why we weren't picked. We didn't get a callback. Maybe we'll be there for episode uh, eight or nine or twenty. Maybe 30. we have faces made for cartoons. Yeah, exactly. So traditionally, when we talk about deterrence, deterrence is trying to either stop an attack against uh, yourself by another force, potentially one with nuclear weapons. Uh, you either use your own nuclear weapons or a combination of nuclear weapons and conventional military. The system, the way it worked in the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, and the way it works today between the United States and other uh, nuclear armed powers around the world, or just, you know, even just India and Pakistan, this sense of deterrence, mutually assured destruction, is a version of that. That's the idea that you won't fire on me, because if I notice you're firing on me, I'm going to fire all my stuff at you, and we can both hit each other. We're both vulnerable to an attack, so it doesn't happen. Now, there's debates about whether or not that is a sustainable system, whether or not accidents can occur, all of that. But obviously, in the in the world of Star Wars, the, re the rebels don't have a Death Star. It's simply a one-sided use of military force or potential use of military force. So it's actually kind of similar to the way the United States was um, from 1945 until 1949, once the Soviets tested their first nuclear bomb. And I think one of the fascinating things about Star Wars is the Death Star, it's certainly a, a gigantic destructive force that can destroy an entire planet. There's a sense that that might change everything. But the way the uh, people talk about it in the, the boardrooms of the original Star Wars movies is it's just a it's another weapon. It's a battle station. It's a military tool. It's a, it's a really good one, but it's also just another weapon that the military goes off and uses. It kind of uses it almost willy-nilly. It's going to blow up this planet. It's going to blow up another one. Well, it's and going it, to keep using these things. And maybe it doesn't have to keep doing it because of the whole doctrine, the Tarkin doctrine of fear. But it's still considered just to be another weapon, similar to how originally nuclear weapons in the U.S. military were just considered to be large bombs. Yeah, and, and you see that supported in the, in the movies themselves where, you know, in A New Hope where you see what was a finished Death Star supposed to look like and unlike the the. Return of the Jedi. I don't want to call it the third movie because that would just confuse people more. <laughs> but you saw it. I mean, it was it held, you know, additional ships. It held entire like platoons or whatever their structure is of soldiers and stuff. In many ways, I always in my mind, I thought of it more like an aircraft carrier or something. Mm. You had like Star Destroyers. Then you had the Super Star Destroyer. And it seemed like the Death Star was like the next level of weaponry. But that was merely on the same range or scale of... There, you know, it wasn't considered just one giant weapon. It was meant – it had a weapon on it, but, you know, it was meant to be a, a broader military vehicle tool. Well, it would be a fascinating alternate history of Star Wars. You know, there's enough expanded universe stuff. There should be an expanded universe, a what-if storyline like you get in the old Marvel comics. Well, what if the Rebels also had a Death Star that could maybe hold Coruscant? the capital of the empire at risk. If there's reports that Alderaan got destroyed, well, heck, now we're going to go blow up Coruscant. Well, if you're like one of the rebels and you're like, you know what? We can keep like blowing them up. They're just going to build more. We mm -hmm. have to just build our own. And that gets into basic deterrence right there. Right. There's, it's really fascinating why the rebels decided never to build a weapon like this. They, there's debates in the prequel about whether or not the Republic needed a standing army. They eventually got that clone army of the Republic. Turns out that it was the Emperor the whole, the whole time orchestrating this and eventually used that against the Republic. But you had this question about whether or not they needed a standing army, whether or not they needed later on uh, after the Star Wars original movies all finished, that there wasn't another sense that they needed to build a Death Star like thing to protect the peace now that they have it there would be fascinating to see if there was some kind of conversation in one of the star wars literature about whether or not they should build one 
and why they didn't. I think I'd be, I'd be curious to see if it was a moral question, a cost budgetary question. Well, I mean, you could see like just from the characters in Rogue One. I mean, if all of a sudden there's a d- dispute between like Saw Guerrera hmm. and uh, the extremist some, and, and some of the other Alliance folks, as far as I don't want to say we stole a Death Star, but <laughs> I mean, one would think if you have a planet destroying capability, there's probably the same destruction capability of like a nuclear weapon attainable so if all of a sudden Saul Guerrero was saying hey we can take this giant quarter planet destroying bomb down to Coruscant and we can smuggle it in let's just do it I, I could see that being an, an incredibly I don't want to say realistic but a reasonable conflict within the rebel hmm. alliance of well if you have the capability to like take out the emperor but you're going to take out you know, a couple, uh, well, given the yeah. size of Coruscant, you're going to take out a couple billion people as well. You know, is that justifiable? And you saw hints of that, those types of conflicts in the the Cassian character, right? Where I think he alludes to things that he's had to do mm-hmm. in service of the rebellion that he hasn't been proud of. It seems like Cassian at the beginning of the movie would be totally happy with building, bringing a small nuclear bomb to Coruscant and blowing mm-hmm. up the Emperor. Cassian at the end of the movie would be like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to find another way. Right, right. Trying to steer the the rebels toward a more, I don't want to say moral, but a, a more ethical way to fight the Empire. Exactly. Star Wars Episode Four, Rogue One, and Episode Six are not the only uses of uh, a Death Star-like object. The Force Awakens, which is the, the new, re, ah, necessarily rebooted, restarted uh, Star Wars movies, they had their own Death Star-like weapon, which they called uh, Star Killer Base, which I thought was cool because uh, the original name for Luke uh, Skywalker was Star Killer. Brought that name back for this movie, Star Killer Base, as its name would maybe hint at. It uses the very energy of nearby stars, sucks that energy. I don't know what that, if it's radiation or if it's fire or whatever it is. It takes the power of the of a star charges up the weapon and the laser energy fires from Starkiller base and it doesn't just blow up one planet you know no you have to take that to the next level and it fires similar to a uh, ICBM with multiple independent targeted reentry vehicles mervs and in a single blast can destroy multiple planets at the exact same time of course that's only maybe maybe only I saw that in the movie, but because also the fact that it takes energy away from the sun, it draws another a parallel to me about nuclear fission and the idea of harnessing the very power of the sun, uh, the idea of, of fusing and fission. Maybe I'm just overthinking it, but I think they combine all those different pieces together to to at least let me talk about it and rant about it on the podcast. So what I didn't get about that, and maybe you know it's been a while since I saw Force Awakens, but. I mean, did they explain that away? Was it just supposed to be that one station? Because you would think, I mean, it was the idea that they would suck the energy out of the star to the point that the star dies. Yeah, and then they would go to another star. So they would rebuild that whole thing? No, they would just, it moves, moves too. So they built that entire star killer base separately? I, I thought it was they like built, built it in... on like a planet or a moon right. or whatever it is, and okay. it can move. It also can move because they put some rockets on it or something. They say that in the movie? I think it's it's part of the, the canon, the lore. I don't know if they say that it moves, but... Oh, I thought the whole idea was that... Because that's how they, they were able just to... Build it, they wouldn't build it to do like three shots. So, I mean, clearly they set it up where it had to be stationary so they couldn't have like a Death Star just showing up right. where the new... Well, this know, one doesn't have is. to because it seems like it also combines... If I remember my, my reading of the uh, the Wikipedia for the Starkiller base, it fires its weapon... And it can travel through the same way that a ship travels through at light speed. Like the energy from the blast fires and travels at that same speed to the place that it's going to blow up. So I think it moves, but it doesn't need to move 
to within a, the range of the original Death Stars. I will say that was one of the things I was not so pleased with with mm. the Force Awakens. Let's I let's, let's say what, we'll talk about that right at the end because uh-huh. I think we have some disagreement here right. uh, about the two different movies. So the next section that we'll talk about, which I call the subcontractors. Strike back. The Death Star's creation is at its most basic level a massive engineering challenge. One, that while it eclipses the Manhattan Project, the project to create the original uh, nuclear bomb in the United States, the, it shares a number of similarities, including a commitment to using massive amounts of resources and human capital, as well as a massive commitment to informational security. Although on both levels, they, they fail in, in some uh, major capacities. So as Joel talked about in the plot discussion, the fuel that powers the Death Star's primary cannon, the, they're called kyber crystals in Star Wars lore, which is interesting. They're also the same things that Jedi use to build their lightsabers, which they, to me, that uh, because I'm crazy, it brings to mind the real-world quest for plutonium-239 and uranium-235, those isotopes that are used in, the, uh, in a nuclear warhead. Because according to the Wikipedia, a kyber crystal needs to be collected you know, mined in Jeddah, refined and enriched in a particular configuration to be, in, to be able to be used in a controlled chain reaction, just like plutonium and uranium is for either a nuclear reactor that or a nuclear bomb. They definitely are scarce resources, so they're not just all around the universe on, you know, you lift up a rock and it happens to have some kyber crystals on the bottom of it. These are things you need to mine. They're in certain very scarce locations. And you have to enrich them. Uh, to that to that particular level to use in weapons grade uh, weapons grade Death Star fuel and one more thing I think is pretty interesting and this might be a little crazy uh, but so the Death Star plans as Joel mentioned in Rogue One uh, the, the the Death Star plans were stored on hard drives like a hard drive in your own home computer which I thought was pretty was pretty fascinating you know with Star Wars you'd imagine they would have some kind of crazy technology uh, but like in Star Wars kind of does there's always it's high tech but it's 1970s era uh, technology styling. The entire sequence where the in Rogue One where the data tapes are stolen reminded me personally of a tour that I took a couple years ago at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, the supercomputer complex there. And this complex is stores and does uh, simulations of nuclear explosions and nuclear testing and those physics that are involved once a, a bomb goes off or if a, a chain reaction gets started. The tapes in their server room, which they walked us through and, and showed us around, are essentially stored very similarly to the storage facility in Rogue One. That rows of these hard drive tapes that are storing each individual nuclear test. Uh, so the, one of the guys in the tour pointed and said, all right, see that one up there in the top left? Um, that one is the original Trinity nuclear bomb test. And I thought that was pretty cool. He wouldn't let me touch it. And there was no attempt by me to steal the original uh, t- Trinity test plans. But there is actually an arm, a mechanical arm, that goes and grabs the tape from where it's being stored and brings that over to another uh, connection to where someone off-site accesses it through the computer. So it's the same kind of deal like Scarif. Uh, I know IT uh, infrastructure uses similar systems, but I just thought that was pretty cool. Because I know, Joel, when we saw that movie together, you came out and said, really, they use hard drives? You thought it would be something different. I don't know if I, I thought it would be I, – I, I thought it was – I don't want to say cute, but I thought it was interesting that they'd, they'd take it in that direction as far as stealing the plans. Like they literally go to a server mm-hmm. and pull the, the disk out. They're not just, something like, from they're not the just hackers. Like plugging in, hacking in, yeah. Well, it's just, it's just the way that information security – like we mentioned, it's really important for the Empire to have their plans in a, in a, in a capacity where someone just can't – 
you know, hack in. You have everything stored, uh, what's sometimes referred to in the IT cybersecurity uh, domain as uh, air-gapped. You have your server and it's not connected to the outside space internet or you know, real-world internet, whatever you happen to have. It's not connected. For you to send out information, someone has to physically take the hard drive, move it to somewhere else, transmit it with that gigantic uh, radar dish and send it out you know one at a time and it only goes out nothing comes in in order to be able to hack so that's a their way of of doing information security now it doesn't help when you have an insider to an insider threat um, to be able to come in and, and help you break into the system and then steal everything out but there's clearly a sense of, of importance of information security and the Manhattan project had similar ways of compartmentalizing information. So not everyone that worked on the Manhattan Project knew the full picture. Actually, very few people did. Most people thought they were building some kind of military weapon, but not everybody knew the entire process. Even the people who were building the bomb itself only knew certain pieces of it. But there was still problem with spies. There were several spies that were caught during the process and later on. So the final section I want to talk about here is essentially what Star Wars teaches us as people that go to the movies and try to escape from the real world. What does it tell us about the real world in terms of nuclear weapons? So I've got a lot of, of different uh, things here, and I, I would love to have a conversation, Joel, about what, you know, what you think uh, Star Wars teaches people, you know, kind of what you may have been able to pull out of this conversation today. Beyond just the imagery, because imagery is easy. You have a visual effects person copy a nuclear bomb test and put that onto the big screen. But I think there's also things beyond just the imagery. First, I would say that there's an example of the people that are fighting the Empire, whether it be the rebels, the resistance, as they're called in Star Wars Force Awakens, the Alliance, whatever you call them. The people that are fighting the Empire seem to be locked in a never-ending cycle of needing to vanquish the very next big, improved Death Star, despite all of their previous successful battles in the past. And I think that's similar to me, the constant race that people have in order to restrain the proliferation of ever more powerful nuclear weapons. So you have people that are anti-nuclear movements from the 1960s, the Ban the Bomb Crusade. In the 1980s, you had a nuclear freeze movement. You have the Global Zero Movement, and you also have another group called ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish uh, Nuclear Weapons. At this year, they're trying to force a vote at the United Nations to essentially ban nuclear weapons, to say that they're an illegal weapon because of their indiscriminate destruction. So there's these efforts, and the people sometimes win little battles. Sometimes they're in, the, in forms of bans against nuclear testing in the atmosphere or reductions in weapon stockpiles. You have this general norm against the use of nuclear weapons. But despite all of these victories, it's always a continual struggle. Before Barack Obama left office, he had plans to spend upwards of a trillion dollars uh, over the next 30 years on modernizing U.S. nuclear force. The current president wants to, quote, greatly strengthen and expand the U.S. nuclear capacity, build more of the nuclear triad, more missile defense. Even the Department of Energy has hinted in some of its reports that it might need to resume nuclear testing. I think all of these factors show that these battles are really never truly over. They're just waiting for the next sequel. I guess I can see that. I, I, I guess the difference with Star Wars, though, is you never had the rebellion on an equal playing field, you know, with the empire, right? Mm. It's much more like, I don't know, if the Soviets viewed the United States as some empire in the in the first couple of years, and so then they were racing to develop their own nuclear weapon capability, right? Well, we're, um, yeah, we're the ones that call them the evil empire, but I can see right. their I'm just trying to think what's, yeah. you know, it's a parallel. According to a book that, I, that I'll mention at the end 
uh, here of the podcast, there was a, a story about why George Lucas, for example, may have gone into a little bit of some controversy because he saw the rebellion in the original Star Wars movie as not a parallel to the United States. He saw them as resistance fighters against a larger empire similar to resistance fighters and, and soldiers in Vietnam fighting against an imperial force. He saw his own views on war and translated that to the, the big screen. He took his own feelings on the Vietnam War and you know paralleled that in Star Wars. If Star Wars was playing out for real, I would think it would be a natural next step for the Alliance once they survived the first Death Star attack to be mm -hmm. like, well, they're going to fix that vent, you know, and then like, well, what do you do now? Because obviously you have far more limited resources than the Empire, you know, and I never really kind of stopped to say, what would exactly be the end game for the Alliance? Hmm. I mean, fortunately, we can take it as a given that they beat the Empire when they killed the Emperor and the Death Star, and they just kind of assumed... At least at the end of the movie, there's an initial wave of celebration that, oh, we must have vanquished the entire empire. Obviously, in Force Awakens, we realize that is not the case. Mm -hmm. So it, it takes a little more realistic step back and says, well, wait a minute. You killed the emperor, but you didn't really kill, like, the entire infrastructure. And so, But, I mean, it's interesting, you know, the movie makers did not even add any kind of discussion on, well, should we try to come up with our own Starkiller base <laughs> or Death Star or, or any kind of similarly destructive capability sure. or at least some defensive capability. Right. Right. Something to block a, a super laser, something along those lines. Right. I think you're right in terms of the idea of differences of power between the Empire and the, the, the Rebels. Even when there's victories, they're not forever. The story is never done being told. And I think you would have in some, in other types of science fiction stories, once the heroes win against the, the bad guys, the story's over. You know, they lived happily ever after. In Star Wars, that's never the case. Battles still keep happening. The next weapon is still going to happen. It's well, it never is Star over. Wars. True. Right? It's never plural. <laughs> it's not just one. Yeah, it's just kicking it up a notch as far as there's there's this continued struggle between the, the dark side and the light side. True. I'm going to call it that. So I guess that's how the movie creators might take a more like Jedi philosophical approach to, you know, the end is not the development of these mega weapons. Cause you know, even Vader says um, in a new hope, he says, you know, condescendingly says like, don't be so sure about what you've built here. I mean, this is nothing compared to the power of the force. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. So I think that's where you'd see kind of like the ultimate commentary from Lucas hmm. coming forward that you can come up with your most destructive weaponry possible, but in the end, no matter what you do, even if you keep going at it, trying to build something, it's going to be up to good people that are driven by good intentions and stuff like that that are ultimately going to prevail. Hmm. Even if they're they're locked in an epic struggle, that's long term. Definitely is long term with sequels forever and forever. The second lesson I see in uh, Death Stars and Star Wars for real life here is that both of these histories are rich with tales of sabotage, intrigue, in you know just general action. One of the best narrative elements that I like in Rogue One is that the rebellion, capital R is actually a real rebellion, lowercase r. You know, and the idea that there are shades of gray within this organization, that the quote-unquote good guys, like Cassie and Andor, are insurgents, essentially. 
people who struggle after having to commit acts of you know morally questionable activities uh, in, in service of the empire's downfall. In that respect, Row One is actually similar to World War II movies like uh, The Dirty Dozen or any of those kind of movies where the soldiers get together and they defeat the enemy, but they're wondering whether what kind of effects that have on their own person. Also, in terms of real-world examples, uh, in the 1940s, which I think we mentioned in a few of our episodes before, I think it was one of the Star Trek episodes, uh, we talked about this movie called Heroes of Telemark, which is about, in the early 1940s, saboteurs in Norway that went out of their way to bomb and destroy the German production factories producing heavy water, which is a critical component in building a nuclear bomb. So it was another way to have the United States build a bomb before the Nazis did. And you see that in that 1965 movie with Kirk Douglas called Heroes of Telemark. It was also a miniseries in Norway called The Heavy Water War, which I think you can now get on Netflix. But this whole campaign is really interesting in terms of what was involved. For the people with their goal to stop the Nazis from building a nuclear bomb, some of its operations resulted in the death of Norwegian civilians in bombing raids and in this one example of where a ferry was sunk uh, in a lake by saboteurs because it was carrying heavy water into Germany. 14 crew members and passengers died uh, when the SF Hydro sank. Uh, even though efforts were made to minimize civilian casualties, people still died. And there's a discussion at the end about whether or not it was it was worth it. Uh, and I think a lot of people in Norway consider the, the saboteurs to be national heroes, probably because you know they, they stopped the Nazis from being able to build a bomb. But those are still those questions that people in military and resistance forces have to deal with. Another example, a more recent one, is the assassination of four Iranian scientists that were working on their nuclear weapon program between 2010 and 2012. This is something that I thought about when, when Cassian Andor receives orders from his, his superiors to assassinate Galen Erso. He goes through and he has to question whether or not is this worth it? Is it in the service of the greater good? Now that he's, his character is undergoing a little bit of change, uh, I, I think these are certainly questions that we see today uh, and not just in Star Wars movies. The third lesson I see in the Star Wars movies for people that are interested in, uh, in, in nuclear weapons is that essentially an evolving and complicated relationship between the weapons creators, the people who build the bombs, and how they judge their role in history after they bring this new means of destruction into reality. In both Star Wars and the Manhattan Project in the United States, scientists and engineers collaborated together to accomplish what was, was seen as essentially an impossible task. But later, those same groups, after they were done in accomplishing this goal, some of them split into two different groups, those that opposed their inventions and decided now is the time to have an international control to prevent further building and get rid of the, all of these different weapons, and another group who favored further expansion of nuclear weapons, building thermonuclear bombs, hydrogen bombs, bigger bombs that can destroy not just a city center, but an entire city. And I think Galen Erso would have gone through some of that same internal debate. You see that amongst himself and uh, Orson Krennic, who they seemed like in, in flashbacks in the movie, they used to be friends, but then they went their separate ways, probably because of Galen's g guilt for building the weapon which could destroy planets. And then Orson, who was, seems like he had an interpretation that the, the Death Star was the way to maintain order and probably also a good way to get a, a, pay, a pay raise in the Empire. So you have these different d disputes amongst the, the, the different scientists that are involved in, in the Manhattan Project. So finally, I, th I think Rogue One underscores how precarious it is for any leader 
or organization, whether it be the Galactic Empire or maybe our current U.S. president uh, or any president, to have the kind of power that nuclear weapons or Death Stars give. For one person to have that control in, in, in basically solitary, sole decision-making process to basically destroy an entire planet, entire cities in an instant with the push of a button, the flip of a key or whatever they do in Star Wars when they pull all those different levers. You know, the guys that have helmets that look like shovels when they pull the lever and down and the cannon gets fired. You know, destroying an entire city or a planet in one action and one person making that decision is, I think is dangerous, uh, probably unsustainable and in, in Star Wars in particular, insane. Well, one thing I, th- I think it was clear that Galen and the others that were supposed to be like those people with those helmets, or at least you know yeah. th- those types of those were the types of people who had been actually operating it. Because I always wondered, like, man, that guy who actually hits that button—that's like a serious dude, or well, you know, yeah, assuming like he was a guy, guy who but, would, like a flip flip a switch. At it's a... like you're the you're the person who's uh, you know ultimately like firing the trigger, almost like you know the person who actually pulls the switch at an execution or something, mm-hmm. or detonates a nuclear bomb. But I, I I I wondered after the fact why they never showed any hesitation on the part of any of the imperial staff because it seemed like galen was kind of speaking for like a broad almost scientific community Mm. resistance to the building of the death star and i i I thought it would have been kind of cool to show more of the internal like when they're they're setting up the death star to fire and stuff like that it would have been cool to see them almost like regretfully or almost reluctantly fire the stuff like to make it more human even on the imperial side well i think you these people are probably trained and trained and trained and trained away any sort of yeah individuality resistance similar to people who take uh when they work in silos missile silos they take that responsibility pretty mm. seriously that it's it's not something that it's a decision for you to make it's your job you is a role mm. for you to play and obviously when they do that job before they get to do it they go through psychological exams uh, and lots of intense training so that it's just an automatic activity similar to people that are drone pilots right. in, our, in our military it's not something it's a it's a mission that you serve that has a purpose and a rationale behind it in terms of greater good it's not something that you maybe have an individual choice i think the individual choice you might be wanting is in star wars the force awakens when you have our main of our main characters finn who i think shows that some people who are stormtroopers may not be exactly excited about killing cut out for it yeah they may not be cut out for it, or they may not be excited for it maybe they're people that were forced into it and they fear that if they show any sort of resistance them and maybe their families will be targeted next by the empire well and i guess it's also a key thing to remember you know clearly once galen finishes project and the the guys are they've got their more scientific looking clothes on (laughs) kind of swept away i guess it clearly became a military operation after that which you've seen in other movies where right some scientific discovery is like awe-inspiring and then the military takes over and says thanks and then they uh, formalize we'll take they, a, they we'll take it over from here yeah to turn it more into a tool and on the flip side of that um, i think you also see the the fear that a weapon of this nature instills can inspire some ordinary people in the star wars universe to summon the courage to you know rebel to fight against unseemingly impossible odds and to seek ways to reduce the risk of their own planet's uh, demise against these kind of forces. And you see that same type of motivation uh, instilling a passion in especially younger people today 
to do these disarmament campaigns. And you have even older, former Cold War warriors, people like Henry Kissinger, George Soltz, Sam Nunn, William Perry. Some of those people were you know, former secretaries of state, former de- de- Defense Department people, uh, former senators. You have these people who have gone uh, essentially a transition in their career from views about being pro-nuclear weapon to ones being maybe we should start to think about a way to get rid of these weapons because they are not sustainable. And then you have a very passionate young generation of people driving these global zero movements around on college campuses and global protests. So you have these people who are on both sides of this particular debate because of the idea maybe it's dangerous that one person uh, gets to make these decision and it should be something that's more um, either democratically discussed or this weapon, this type of force shouldn't exist at all. But even on the other flip side of that, you have supporters of these types of weapons, either supporters of, of, of a strategy of nuclear deterrence or supporters of the Death Star shock and awe Tarkin doctrine type group. Uh, who believes that peace through strength, the ability to in- inflict damage through nuclear weapons, is a way to keep the peace. Our own planet debates these types of questions with nuclear weapons. So I think you have these debate, but I think you also see in the real world and in Star Wars that the Death Star's existence or nuclear weapons' existence is not a you know end of security debates, that there are still other problems that they have to deal with, even in a world of this type of destruction. You have... In our world, nuclear weapons, uh, maybe you can make an argument for preventing larger United States, Soviet Union, or Russia and China fighting each other, but it's not a panacea to security dilemmas. You still have a number of proxy conflicts that take place during the Cold War and today. You still have international terrorism. You still have small wars, uh, even small wars initiated against people with nuclear weapons. So these wars, these kind of conflicts don't go away because of nuclear weapons. The Death Star didn't end the rebellion. Yeah, well, a new, uh, a new Hope, there's a lot of good dialogue. I realized I should have gone back to A New Hope just to uh, watch that one scene where they're in the boardroom uh, talking about kind of the, the power of the station. And one guy asked the guy with the really long sideburns. I can't remember <laughs> his name, but that's how I remember him. Uh, I think it was when uh, Tarkin announces that uh, the emperor has dissolved the imperial mm. senate. And the guy goes, well, wait a minute, how are we going to, we need a government, like how are we going to exercise control? And Tarkin just says, the regional governors will keep people in line, and then fear of the empire will keep them further in line, fear of this battle station in our power. And looking back on it, I almost think, wait, so you're literally just going to blow up any any given planet if a couple people started causing trouble. I mean, you could have... Taxes are late this week. Right, you could have 95% (laughs) of a planet's population clearly aligned with the Empire. (laughs) But then they're like, dude, we got to kill that that remainder, you know, whoever's here or else our entire planet's going to be Well, that's what Leia says, right? It's like, you know, as you clench your grip around the universe, more and more star systems slip through Through your your fingers. fingers. Yeah, exactly. So So that's a real, I mean, I think that's the same kind of debate people have today uh, in terms of nuclear weapons and and what role they... And end up serving. It's certainly a lot of planners that work in the military in terms of day-to-day operations, especially you know global war and terrorism or conventional military fights. Nuclear weapons are in there, but they're not. It's such a low priority for their use. Most people think about nuclear weapons as the thing you would use to deter another nuclear attack. So it's all about just stopping other people from using nuclear weapons against us. The weapons themselves don't serve any sort of deterrence against non-nuclear attacks. Right. I mean, so. at best, and you saw this with the New Hope, at best, the Death Star was going to be used to kill the remnants of the Alliance's military mm-hmm. capability, assuming it was in one or a small number of planets. 
But then you get to the whole point of like a rebellion at, at its heart is made up of people within the existing galaxy. So it's, will you know, it, you'd yeah, quickly, right. You'd quickly get into, unless it did cause that much uh, fear, but you'd get into a situation where it's like, well, you could have very loyal planets that are going to have some semblance of six people as some small number that's still causing trouble. Exactly. All right. So uh, in conclusion, I think that while Star Wars takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the story's appropriation of, of nuclear themes is a reminder that the dangers posed by these super weapons today are not so far from home. Given that uh, long discussion, hopefully people are still listening, I think we should play a quick game that I put together. Uh, I want to test Joel's knowledge of Star Wars and his non-knowledge of nuclear weapon history. All right, so the game that I have here, people like to joke about this, the names of characters in Star Wars. They're very distinct. They've got, you know, like Luke Skywalker. Lando Calrissian. Lando Calrissian or Han Solo. You have all these really cool names. But, I, you know, I'm looking through the history of, of, of people that were involved in either the Manhattan Project or uh, weapon designers from, from over history. I, I think some of them got Star Wars names. So uh, to the point where I might want to test Joel's knowledge here. And the game is called... Uh, Star Wars name or nuke person name. You get one kyber crystal point, Joel. For each of these you get right. I've got a long list right. here, but we'll see how many you can get through. Uh, once you get 10 kyber crystals, you win the game. Well, let's see how you can get through. Some of these might be easy. Well, let's let's play around here and see what we got. You ready? All right, let's do it. All right, first one. Otto Han. Nuke person, Star Wars person. Nuke person. <laughs> it is a nuke person. It's a German chemist who proved uh, nuclear fission. So that's one kyber crystal. Hans Beta. Star Wars person. <laughs> Nuke person. Oh. I tried to trick you there with the Han Solo. Uh, but he was a scientist involved in the U.S. Manhattan Project. One of the Eastern European uh, immigrants who fled uh, Europe against uh, when the Nazis took over uh, and then was involved. And pretty, pretty, pretty helpful in our process. Can here. I just double check? Are we doing the expanded universe characters as we, well? We've got, we've got original canons characters. We've got the cartoon series. Oh, we've got, okay. uh, we've got legend stories. Everything. I had to draw from a Yikes. pretty wide uh, okay. array here. I only subscribe to the definitive vision of George Lucas. No, nope. I'm sorry um, here. Uh, Doctor Cornelius of Ons, nuke person. <laughs> He's a Star Wars person. Uh, That's the name of the guy who's the friends of the walrus man at Most Icely Cantina. The guy who pokes Luke Skywalker and says, uh, I am, I am I'm a death sentence on nine systems. Uh, well, it was 12. Don't 12, undersell him okay. here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Dr. Cornelius Avon. Rusty. That's his, that's his science name. Uh, Max Rebo. That's Star Wars person? Is a Star Wars person. Yeah. He's the uh, the leader of the band in, uh, I think, uh, Jabba's right. Palace in yep. Return yep. of the Jedi. Bum, bum, bum. Anyway. So how many is that now? That's uh, two you got? Yep. Bud Uwana. Bud Uwana. Nuke or Star Wars? Star Wars? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a nuke guy. Uh -huh. he, he was a counterintelligence officer at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. But he's got a very Star Wars name. I think his nickname was Bud. And his last name was Iwana. Okay. C.O. Bibble. <laughs> and again, be careful. These companies people got some Eastern European names, so you got to be careful. C.O. Bibble. C.O. Bibble. Uh, Star Wars person. That is Star Wars. He's the uh, governor of Naboo in the uh, prequels. Okay. 
So that's three Kyber crystals. Next one, Ken Bainbridge. That sounds like a real person. It is a real person. Yeah, okay. He was one of the scientists uh, who helped to prep the Trinity test site. He was the one who, after the bomb worked, had a quote that said, uh, I guess we're all now sons of bitches uh, after building <laughs> the nuclear bomb. Uh, the next one, John Williams. Star Wars? The or composer? The Star name Wars? Is, the name is John Williams. So it might be an homage to the composer. I'm going to say a real person. It was a real person. That one might be a little bit easier. I get extra credit because I could, you know. <laughs> uh, he was uh, involved in the Trinity test site as well as the uh, at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Admiral Hyman Rickover. Nuke person, Star nuke Wars. Nuke person? It is a nuke person. Uh, he was the uh, father of the nuclear navy in the United States. One of the guys who really pushed and came up with uh, some of the big developments in nuclear propulsion. Odie Mandrell. Odie Mandrell. Nuke? Or Star, Star Wars. Wars. It is Star Wars. You're getting good here. He was a pod racer in Phantom Menace. Ugh. Yeah. I'm amazed I got that one. I feel like I've tried to purge that from my memory. The next one is K-Way. K-Way. Nuke or Star Wars? Star Wars. <laughs> that is a nuke person. Mm. She was a physicist. Uh, involved in the Manhattan Project, one of the leading female scientists. Unkar Plot. Unkar Plot. Nuke person. Fortunately, Star Wars person. Oh, I thought it might be. He was Simon Pegg's character in A Force Awakens. Oh. Unkar Plot. I, I haven't learned the names yet. Uh. Gotta get on that. Uh, Stas Ali. Nuke person. Star Wars. Uh, he was a, a Jedi him. master in the prequels who was killed by Order 66. So he was one of the one of the guys you see the, in the The guy scenes. with like the fat head with like the the beard. <laughs> oh no. Oh, that's not him. Um but yeah, it's not him. Ponda Baba. Ponda Baba. That sounds like a Star Wars name, but, but... I think that's a trick. So I'm going to go with Nuke Persons. <laughs> Star Wars name. Ah, that's the real name, the full name of the Walrus Man, the guy who gets his arm chopped off uh, when he's hanging out with his friend, uh, Doctor Cornelius Evans. Of course, Panda Baba. Uh, but what about Yuri Babajev? Yuri <laughs> Babajev. Uh, nuke person. It is a nuke person. Oh. Um, he was one of the he people that were heavily involved in the USSR uh, nuclear weapons program. So that's seven. Kyber crystals. You're getting pretty close here. How many do I have left? Uh, there's a quite a few. You'll eventually get it, but let's just All see right. how far we can get going here. All right. Uh, another another one we got here. Maximilian Viers. That sounds like a nuke person. It is a Star Wars person. <sighs> That's uh, Admiral Viers, the guy who gets uh, he fights in the Hoth battle for the Empire. He's the one who targets the uh, fill generator. Admiral right. Viers, you may begin your oh, attack. Okay. These are a lot harder than these are, I... These are tough. These are pretty tough. Neil Bohr. Neil nuke Bohr. That was a nuke person. Early physicist involved in nuclear fission. Um, Didn't they name like an element after him or something? Borium. Borium. Okay. Derek Clivian. Use it in a sentence. Derek Clivian went to the mall. <laughs> Star Wars, nuke. 
Derek sounds too normal sounding for a Star Wars movie. I'll say nuke person. That's what I thought. But uh, he is a Star Wars person. He was a rebel pilot in uh, A New Hope. He's the one who turns what? to everybody and says, when they're talking about destroying the, the vent in the Death Star, he's uh-huh. one of the guys that says, oh, you can't hit that. To which, like my T-16 back home. Exactly. Wow, um, that guy. So yeah, there's some, there's some regular Star Wars names. Like, for example... Derek, what are you doing leaving home to join the rebellion? Derek. Derek. So another one here. Yeah. Carl Yantis. Carl Yantis. Nuke person. He is a nuke person. He was a scientist involved in the Oak Ridge uh, National Laboratory. But I thought Yantis was going to get you. It didn't Yantis. get you. Carl, I guess, is just no... There's no Star Wars guy named Carl. I thought there's no guy named Derek, but... <laughs> uh, Wes Jansen. That sounds vaguely adventurous. I'm going to go with Star Wars. It was Star Wars. I tried to trick you, uh, but it is. That gets your 10th Kyber Crystal. He was, he was a member of Rogue Squadron, and he was actually a gunner for Wedge Antilles, the hero of the Rebellion. Mm. Uh, during the Battle of Hoth. But now, is 10 kyber crystals enough for uh, a Death Star? So you take your, yeah, sure. If you take your 10 kyber crystals yep. and you go to Chuck E. Cheese, you can get okay. yourself one lightsaber. Oh. Does it light up at least? Do I, do I have to buy the battery for that? Oh, it's just the one where you you push it out and the plastic expands. Ooh, those are a disappointment. Yeah, I had no. many of those. You can still hit your younger brother with them. That's true. I was the younger brother. <laughs> can, he hit me. You can Joel strike back. Uh, it's a dark time. Uh, so that was the game. Joel, you got your 10 Kyber crystals. Congratulations. Whew. Let's move on now to our movie discussion, our parking lot discussion. So we're done with the movie. We, we, we stayed up. We went to the midnight showing. Now we're exhausted, but we still want to talk about the movie. When we both saw this film, Rogue One, for the first time, we had a little bit of a tiff when we came out of the theater. Well, you, not a tiff. I would describe we, we it as a tiff. We weren't directly mad at each other. We just had very strong, contrasting views mm-hmm. with the movie. And I'll let you present your case first. <laughs> okay. It's always good you let the other opponent go first. Here, here's what I've used with multiple people, both in online Facebook rants and then also in one-on-one conversations. And thus far, it has appeared to me to be the, the best way to put it or mm-hmm. to verbalize how I kind of look at this. Don't worry, my feelings won't be hurt. Right. One, generally, I very much like the movie. I have not seen it a second time, so I will give it the caveat that I I don't know exactly how well it'll hold up on repeat viewing, but I look forward to seeing it again. But basically, I thought Rogue One is a landscape painting if the main movies are portraits. Hmm. So whereas... You know, A Force Awakens was very character-driven, was very focused on the individual's storylines. Like, what what is this character? Who are they? Why do we care? What are they meant to do in the larger story? I thought Rogue One had there, – there are places where the characters are not as well developed. But I thought the whole point of the movie to be like one of the complementary movies – is to be more of a landscape, to say, you understood the world and universe of Star Wars mm. to be this. We're going to explore, shine the flashlight on an aspect of the world that you only knew about tangentially or you know, in, in pieces. So you're saying like open up the universe. Right. Like if you're looking at like a landscape of a, 
you know, picture of the the desert or something like that. You can kind of get a broader vision. So like, that's why I liked when saw Guerrera, all that. I I heard some people actually kind of say that was kind of dumb because they didn't go into the detail of who they are. I thought it was very cool that they actually kind of hinted at it. So Mm. a landscape painting is, it's much bigger, right? You, You can never delve into too much detail in any one area, not to really extend this metaphor way beyond it should it should go you're painting a good picture here right yeah i'm I'm trying to paint a picture the whole point was to tee up the fact oh maybe there were divisions within the rebellion that the alliance was not so allied in its early days that Mm. they had their own wings that they were trying to rein them in that maybe they had differences in how they went about going after the empire uh they had differences in political leadership i didn't really need and a, a movie in and of itself to go into that to tee it up in my head because I could you in your own head start to play through for the five minutes that you see a, the flashlight focused on that mm-hmm. aspect. That's cool that they kind of add that layer of of texture to the storyline. So it's not just kind of a linear oh the alliance and they go and then they fight and then they win. It's a little more circuitous. Okay. And I thought the same thing. Not to belabor it even more, was, you know, for the the characters, I didn't need to to know as much about their backstory as much as kind of where they fit into that landscape painting. Okay. And that for you worked the whole thing. Yes. I, I thought, you know, the visual elements were very appealing. I, I give them major props or Edward's major props for, I mean, literally killing off basically all of his mm. characters. I thought that was one, an easy way to do a single standalone movie, right. but also a, an interesting way to, to I don't know. I like when I came out of the movie, I thought that was actually a different movie than what I've seen from the other seven Star Wars films. I mean, okay. we've seen seven Star Wars films. So the fact that they would be willing to go so far as to kill all their main characters in, in furtherance of the overall storyline. I mean, I thought an interesting parallel movie would be to return of the Jedi when they're talking about many Bothans died to bring us this information. Like I'd almost want to see what that storyline hmm. looks like. Now, maybe that would be too close to what we saw in rogue one that they went to another movie like that, it uh, enlarged the universe of the Star Wars universe, which I thought you couldn't possibly do okay. in, in my mind as far as actual characters and actual storylines, which I thought was cool. So I, I agree with some of the, those, those points. I think the idea that the Star Wars movie shines light into the idea that the rebellion is actually a rebellion, that there's different views within that group. You're taking such a diplomatic way, Tim. <laughs> to get to I, I vividly remember coming out of the movie theater and you going, that was boring. So that was the first thing that was boring. I think that they attempt to do all of those things that you mentioned. And again, I guess I'll mention that that first time I saw the movie, my initial opinion was the first two thirds of it were very boring that I got what they were trying to do by opening up the universe. And you're right. I guess when you do that, the character development and the plot and some of those things that drive a traditional story aren't as important as the the general tone or well, I will say I like the storyline too. See, I to me, I thought the storyline was so not simplistic because we already knew in a way what the end of the movie was going to be. We knew the Death Star plans were stolen, right? And, and the the mechanics of it, the idea that there's a storyline about a, a a person, you know, in Jen Erso who is not attached to the rebellion, and then for some way she ends up being Her attached fate. to the rebellion, yeah, and all that stuff. I think I've seen that enough in other movies that to me it didn't drive it for me. And I think the way you you hinted at it's not a character driven story. 
I think what works for me so well in all of the other Star Wars movies that are very good is it because it's it's a character-driven story. That these are character-driven sci-fi fantasy stories that aren't really about... The plots for all the Star Wars movies are incredibly simplistic. Like, the original Star Wars is just... You know, it's an homage to some of Lucas's favorite serials right. and his idea of, you know, Kurosawa samurai movies, all those all those different pieces put together in the very basic storyline, the Joseph Campbell's journey. Like right. that storyline is so simple. It's the same storyline has been told for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. Star Wars is driven then by character. How is Jin, how is that, isn't that more actually uh, more of a developed character than Han Solo in A New Hope? Uh, like he, he literally is teed up as sure. like a rabble rouser cowboy type thing you have no idea why he's a cowboy you just know oh he's the rebellious cowboy type but you know I you mean, know his motivations you know he's driven by money that that's what he wants he's driven by yeah. he's driven by money he wants to succeed and then ultimately he gets a friendship but the people like luke and, and leia and all that right. and then he comes to the conclusion at the end that uh it's not just about money it's also about Saving his friends and this other cause, like there's that to me is a, it's simpler than this idea of Jen Urso being abandoned but sent kind of in a way by her father. And so I saw the movie again. I saw I saw Rogue One again mm-hmm. um, a couple of weeks later on. And this time around, I, what I would describe as some of the, the bo- more boring elements of the movie. I was think, it late at night? Because the first time the you first saw, time it I, I, you mentioned that you actually fell asleep in the movie. Well, now now I just want that. Now you're pulling the curtain back. Yes, it was, but I have watched a lot of movies before and when I was very tired, and the story kept me awake. This one, on a few moments, did not. But <laughs> watching them second time again, you're right, it was a little bit earlier in the day. Looking through it again and watching it, I think I did the work of the movie that it was trying to do, especially with ideas like, what's Jen Erso's motivation for this? It was clearer to me the second time around. The first time around, I didn't really understand why she had such an, a quick turn uh, to be in favor of the rebellion, to go on essentially a suicide mission. The same thing with with Cassian Andor, the idea that he was this character who had this past that he wasn't happy with, and then he why he decides to change and then go on this suicide mission. Like these things, I have to do so much work for the movie that I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it as much. Now I'll say the final third of mm. the movie as a visual spectacle is amazing. The battle that takes place, the the differences between the people that were involved in the space battle, which I thought was pretty cool, mm-hmm. and the people on the ground, the soldiers, and our, our two main characters trying to steal the plans. All that stuff visually in, in, in an action level worked pretty well for me, but mm-hmm. it wasn't enough to save the larger movie format. I think there were some pacing problems at the beginning of the film. We go to too many locations all at once. Uh, other times, there's just the story just kind of falls apart and is really slow, which I don't think the other Where Star does it Wars fall movie... Apart? I think it falls apart when they go to Jeddah. I think there's too much what they were trying to do in terms of character development that just didn't, that fell really flat for me. And also the entire story where they go to the father to try to save him. Mm-hmm. I think that whole scene there went on too long and wasn't very exciting for me. I don't. I didn't really get the individual pieces that they were trying to go for. Hmm. I will. I will say that there are some characters, and I'm. <laughs> To your credit, I'm I'm blanking on their names, but I think that's a big piece of it. Yeah, but but uh, but again, you know, landscape painting like the you know the forces with me, that the the blind guy, and his companion, <laughs> the blind guy and his companion. Um, well, the, I think these are all problems that were that for me like that. All those different side characters, I didn't know any of their where they came from, any of their motivations. 
I didn't understand all those military guys at the end that that part of the Rogue Squadron team mm-hmm. that volunteered. I don't know who these guys are. Why do I care that they all of a sudden just get shot and killed and such rapid sequencing of order? But when, how, when that, the blind I mean, guy that's got not, killed, that's he got killed different. by a grenade. The other time, or Rhodey got killed by a grenade that got passed through. Yeah, but no the, I mean, that's not too different from generally. I mean, like A New Hope, all these guys that are going on a suicide mission. I mean, you don't question their... I mean, because you just accept, probably because we've seen mm-hmm. it after 30 years of its cultural impact. Oh, you know, those are the fighters, the X-Wing sure. guys. But so. one of them was ostensibly supposed to be like Luke's friend, Biggs. Right. supposed to be Luke's friend. But, I mean, you have to admit, they're even less developed as far as characters than sure, but the char- are equally developed as the, the people that follow hmm. Jin Erso. To, I mean, but you could see, like, you could see a couple, a bunch of, like, military guys going, like, we're not going to sit on the sidelines. We're going to, like, follow you and steal these plans. Yeah, I think you can think about it after the fact. But in terms of the, the first viewing of the movie, I don't think I, I don't know who these people were why I cared about them. And I think that even really goes to the main characters too. Well, I thought for Jin, that's where the father reunion, however short, was important. Yeah, I don't. I just didn't think that that was executed very well. Hmm. Uh, and I think this is just in terms of what we cared about. And we also compare, which I think is unfair. A lot of people say either have to like Rogue One or Force Awakens. Um, I really, really, really like A Force Awakens. I think that that movie was very fun. It was character driven. I think it was in many ways. I go against the grain thinking that that movie is a reiteration of A New Hope. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't actually subscribe to that particular ideal. I think that it's different enough in the things that matter. In all Star Wars movies, as we kind of talked about, George Lucas talks about why the Star Wars movies right, universal storyline type exactly. Yeah. They they rhyme amongst themselves, and yeah, it's got another Death Star in it. But my position with that was always it's less about A New Hope comparisons than it is to Return of the Jedi. Because the final act of A Force Awakens is not about destroying Starkiller Base. It's done a little quickly. Starkiller Base, they introduce it, they blow up a couple planets, then they come up with a plan really quickly, and then they go through Mm -hmm. and do it. That idea of destroying the base was never the real final act story. What that final act story was about Kylo Ren and his father Han Solo and that conflict. And the conflict then between Kylo Ren and Rey. Like that battle was this final third act story. So in a way, it's more similar to Return of the Jedi where you have the battle on uh, Endor that takes place. But it's more like a backdrop. It's just a backdrop. It's, It's plot that's happening, but it's not the central story. And I think that the characterization of Rey is great. I really like that character. I think Finn's a great character. I think Poe will be developed hopefully more. But I really, really like the villain. I mean, I, I would agree with that. But but and I thought, also there's yeah. no good. And I think sorry. I, I think in Rogue One, the as as kind of neat as Orson Krennic is as a project manager as the villain. Yeah. I don't think he was nearly on the same level as any of the other Star Wars villains. And I think you need. But were you I, expecting that? I wanted it. I think you need those in these kind of things. Otherwise, really? it's just about. The, trying to get the plans as the villain yeah. itself, I just don't but like I thought, it as much. But it, it makes sense if you look at Rogue One war, more as a war movie than as like the traditional Star Wars uh, fairy tales. Because hmm. in, in, as I was watching it, especially in the last third, which we agree was highly entertaining, visually sure. you know appealing and stuff like that, it, it was much more in line with a war movie in the layout, which is 
Saving Private Ryan it probably isn't the exact right movie to bring no, in. No, because but... all of those characters have, in, in that course of the movie, we all come to know and learn about them, and we care when they die at the end. Yeah, well, somewhat, but like not all of them. I, I'd say the vast majority of them. Yeah, but but I think you, you see a lot more, uh, not a generalizing, but in war movies, you can't allocate the same amount of time and attention to each person as you can in like an, an action movie where you have like three or four principal mm. people. Whereas in many war movies that are very good, you still get a lot of, I don't know, Braveheart. You do have a fair amount of background characters. The thrust of the movie is not an individual's character development. Mm -hmm. It's how this group of characters react to a situation. Sure. How a team comes together, what right. it does. I just don't think that Rogue One does that very well. I, I know they tried to do it, and I, I, I think the second time I saw it, I, I was looking for characterization moments about why we we you know things we learn about the people and and why we should maybe want them to succeed near the end other than just the thing we know that's going to happen they know they're going to get the death star plans and it's going to get transmitted to somebody even though the actors in rogue one are pretty good i just don't think they're given enough to work with i think the the han solos and the leias and the lukes and all of those characters in the original trilogy and i would even apply that to people like finn and ray and kylo ren I think we, we get more out of what's given there, even as simple as it is. Let's do our rating system because that'll at least help to close out of right. our, our final thoughts here. We always do a rating system out of one out of five, but we like to change it up because we want to make sure that it's tailored. If we get super critical about it, we should uh, pay attention to our rating system as well. The rating system I have here is one out of five Death Star super laser reactors. So the number of reactors. One reactor will just take out a city. That's five reactors will blow you away on a planetary scale. Oh. So, Joel, what do you got? How many reactors are you giving this one? I'm going to give it four. I thought if – I think before we said three is a good movie, four is a great movie, five is you know kind of a, an amazing movie. Sure. And that's my own kind of internal like way to think about it. I thought it was a – great movie you know i'd put it probably at the same level as you know some of the the best comic book you know marvel mm -hmm. movies like there are some that are like really great how do you um, place this one in terms of the star wars movies ranking from best to worst so definitely better than all the three prequels i said before and i, I want to watch it a second a uh, second time because i i've seen force awakens a second time and that kind of confirmed what i thought was its lasting power so i want to see rogue one again but I thought I actually did enjoy it better than Force Awakens. Okay. I will admit there were characters that I liked better in Force Awakens, but in terms of an overall movie, an overall piece of two hours, I could actually see myself wanting to watch Rogue One again hmm. more than Force Awakens. I'm the opposite of that. I think I'm done with, with Rogue One. You know, if it's on TV, I'm sure maybe I'll, I'll get it for my birthday. But I think I'm good on that, and I, can, I watch Force Awakens every couple of months. I, I, I've seen it. I actually just watched it to try to con reconfirm. How many my times have you it. watched it? I've, I probably have seen. So I saw it in the theater three times, uh, and I've seen it on Blu-ray uh, eight times, seven times. What? Not every time, like sitting down and focusing on it for a podcast, Whoa. but a couple times just having the back. My rating for this movie, I really want to give it three, and which is because I want to say right. it's a. It's I'll a, take that. It's a good movie. It's not a great movie. It's not a. It's not really a movie that I loved with Star Wars. On the second viewing, it was better, but it's still. I'm just trying to figure out a, a comparison. Well, so but. so I think um, if I had to rate them in terms of total Star Wars movies, I think my rating tends to always be in terms of the best to the 
to the worst. I, you know, I'm a big fan of Empire. You and I had a joint birthday party a couple of years ago. This is true. Where we rented out a movie theater for our friends right. and showed Empire Strikes Back. That's one of our favorite Star Wars movies, one of our favorite movies. So you would show Force Awakens over Rogue One? I would. I absolutely mm. would. Um, I think people would have a lot more fun uh, with that one. Also, it's not as bleak at the end when you're like, oh, shoot. Well, That's true. I guess we'll... Happy Force birthday, Awak- everybody. <laughs> Force Awakens ends um, with... Uh, well, I guess I guess Force Awakens ends with this, that weird scene with uh, with Luke. It's it's scene. more optimistic. And, you know, it's more it, like... And Empire also We're ends setting pretty, up something that's going to be great. And I guess Empire ends pretty dark, too, because... Han Solo is that stuck is in true. carbonite. You can't really say we ended on an optimistic note. Yeah. But anyways, we had we were as optimistic because we had Star Wars themed cookies. That is true. That was pretty good. good. cookies. Uh, so, you know, Empire, I would always, I would put on the top. Uh, I would then say, you know, the 1977 Star Wars. Um, but then I would put on Force Awakens before Return of the Jedi. I don't enjoy as much of Return of the Jedi. Oh, before Return of the Jedi. Yeah, I oh, would. Interesting. I, it's close. It's very, very close. But I think... So in, in terms of your ranking that you like the best, so it's going to be like 5, 4, 7, then yeah. 6? 5, 4, 7, uh, then 6. But 6 is really close to 7. Because 6 is overall, the ending to 6 mm. is pretty good. You know, beyond that, in terms of Rogue, Rogue One is with the prequels, it's obviously better than the first two. But I also really kind of like what um, I kind of like Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, uh, I think I think it's got some good stuff there. I'm I think that to... might might have been where you lost me to. Yeah. See, you you would put Revenge of the Sith over Rogue One. I would put them right at the exact same level. But but yeah, you know. So I would give this movie a three. Uh, it's a good movie, but I I don't see myself grabbing up some popcorn right. and being like, hey, let's sit down and watch Rogue One. Well, I'll, I'll take a three. I mean. When we first came out of that theater, you were pretty oh, I in, negative. I was in two territory, yeah. I mean, you were you were pretty dismissive. I felt of the uh, of the effort. Well, it was it was late. I was cranky. I'm getting old, so <laughs> and I fell asleep. <laughs> uh, I have a couple things to recommend to people, and they want to learn more about Star Wars and want to learn more about uh, its connection to nuke stuff. I'd recommend checking out my article, which is in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist from January 2017. And I'll link to it in our show notes. I also recommend reading a book called The World According to Star Wars by Cass Sunstein, who a lot of people know for his legal analysis. Uh, but it was a book that came out in 2016. It's about what Star Wars has to teach us about things like constitutional law, economics, political uprisings, and relationships between you know fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and all kinds of different relationships like that. I think it's a pretty good comparison study. So it's similar to what we did today. Uh, another book by Chris Taylor from 2015 called How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. And that has some of those interesting points that I mentioned earlier about George Lucas and how he used Star Wars to get out his message and views uh, and frustrations about the Vietnam War. Uh, and finally, I'll link to a couple of these fun articles that estimate how much the Death Star would cost. Because uh, a lot of people, there's different ranges of opinions there about like the cost of simply just the construction material. It's, people have thought about this. But they more made the regional systems pay for it, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so that's what I've got. Joel, anything you want to recommend uh, for people to follow? Some of your, maybe some of your favorite Star Wars related material. Um, Get him I don't into know. This, you read some of the Star Wars books too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was a big fan. Well, if you want to get bleak, uh, you read Dark Empire. Mm. You've kind of seen like various elements of the expanded universe being incorporated into the the canon, but they take the license to do whatever they want with it. Mm. So, I mean, I know a lot of people have talked about Thrawn 
maybe showing up at some point. So they Admiral Thrawn character. That's the Timothy Zahn stories? Uh, yeah, yeah. Who is like the blue-skinned, I think he had red eyes, uh, Admiral, who is kind of out there. Um, Dark Empire, if you want to get bleak. Uh, that was probably one of my favorite storylines hmm. where Palpatine actually comes back because he had a intricate system of cloning. Uh, so he could transfer his consciousness to a lot of things like that. Like clones. supposedly, it's canon that Darth Maul survived the fight with Obi Wan, and in the cartoon Clone Wars series, he's like walking around with his lower half is now a robot spider-looking thing. Oh, and I haven't seen that actually. I, I haven't delved these into are the cartoons at all. Me neither. I've I've read a few of the stories. Like I've read uh, Shadows of the Empire. I'm pointing at it in my oh yeah my library. Shadows here. is good. That's a great one. Um, I'm just reading Dark Lord right now, which is about Darth Vader fighting some stuff. So you recommend uh, those books? Dark Empire, the the, the graphic novels. Uh, I think there's Dark Empire and Dark Empire Two, uh, and then um, can't go wrong with the Thrawn trilogy as well. So there's a lot of go- oh, and then um, one I really loved was. <laughs> The uh, there was a whole book written on what all the uh, bounty hunters did oh, yeah. from Empire Strikes Back, like how they got to that point. Is that Tales of the Bounty Hunter? Yeah, yeah, Tales of the Bounty Hunters. And so I, I love those backstories, which was in a way kind of like Rogue One, right, where you get the landscape painting a little bit. IG eighty eight. Uh, so the, oh, now I'm a nerd. Oh, there anyway. we go. Well, now hey, you, you know this is the podcast to do it. So you know, you've been outed. You're, you're super critical nerd. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, nuke-wise or Star Wars-wise, a couple ways you can contact the show. You can reach us on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercritical. Reach us on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. And we got an email account waiting for your email, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also check out our website. I'm happy to announce we have a website that has a place where all the episodes are stored. You can be able to get easy access to them. And I'm slowly building up some resource material, uh, some additional links to things to read. You can also check out... Uh, some of these little features I'm putting, putting together. There's a blog where we occasionally post a few things there. So, but check it out, supercriticalpodcast.com. If you also enjoyed the program, we'd appreciate if you would consider subscribing on iTunes or leaving a review. We've been told that these are the ways to reach the, a larger audience. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer and Joel. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. That was a terrible Vader.